listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We are searching scripture today. We'll do that in just a moment. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting The Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. We are digging into the October issue of The Lutheran Witness. And our regular monthly guest for Searching Scripture is Pastor Tony Oliphant of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. He's been doing a great job of writing these studies for us. And then, so gracious to come on here on The Coffee Hour, and help us like unpack it. So, Pastor Oliphant, welcome back to the Coffee Hour. Good to be back. All right, so we are continuing in Philippians. We're in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Is there an overarching theme or an intro you'd like for us to, to chat about before we dig into the text today? This one is going to be Paul's kind of recognition of his actual state in life, that he he's striving toward this goal but he also is recognizing his own shortcomings as a sinner. And so we're going to be looking at this at the same time being a saint and a sinner, not really, you know, throwing in the towel on either side, but we're going to see what Paul has to say about that. All right. Shall we take a look at the text today? Would you like to read the the text we're looking at today? Yeah, we have a fairly short portion, so I'll just read those four verses. Paul writes, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But those of us who are mature think this way, and if if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. All right, let's dig in. Question one, read Philippians 3, verse 12, which you just read. How does Paul describe his status on the path to perfection? Reread verse 11. When does Paul recognize perfection will be achieved? How is this different from the position of the Judaizers against whom Paul has just warned his readers? See Philippians 3, verses 2 through 8 for a reminder. Even though Paul has not made perfection his own, where does he find comfort? All right. So because it was a month ago that we talked about Paul and the Judaizers, and maybe even a little bit further back than that was when we started mentioning them, we have Paul saying that he's going to be doing everything that by any means necessary, he may attain the resurrection of the dead. And this is where he's going to see perfection. Paul is going to differ from the Judaizers here who are going to be seeking perfection in this life by perfect adherence to the law of Moses, saying that, sure, faith in Christ is a great start, but now you've got to keep X, Y, and Z from this uh, specific legal code from Sinai. Paul's going to be saying, no, that the perfection is in the resurrection of the dead. And we confess this too, that this is when Christ resurrects us, makes our bodies perfect, and we leave behind the sinner, our fallen, our fallen sinful nature permanently. And so this is why Paul says in 12, I haven't already obtained this, uh, that he's still striving toward it. But, you know, he spent this last paragraph talking about how if the Judaizers want to uh, claim that they're perfect, that he has even more reason to claim that he has been keeping the law even, even better than they have. But here he's saying that he doesn't actually view this as the source of his perfection. 
And so, but he doesn't, he isn't morose about it. And he certainly doesn't seem despondent. He finds comfort in the fact that Christ has already made me his own. As what, as the way that Paul puts it at the end of verse 12, that even though he's, uh, he isn't perfect yet, Christ is perfect and Christ has claimed Paul. And that's where he's ultimately going to find his strength and his comfort, uh, that even though uh, he's, even though he, uh, he still is falling short, uh, Christ has already done all of that for him. Hmm. Now, if we were Wesleyan, we'd look at this text very differently, right? Hmm. We're talking about perfection. Yes. Yeah. If we're, if we're, if we're approaching it from any of the kind of holiness denominations, then we would be looking at this as, you know, Paul's still straining to achieve perfection, to achieve this, this holiness in this life. And of course he does make that argument here in this paragraph, but he's never, he also recognizes he's never going to be fully perfect. That that's Christ's job to be perfect for us and then to share that with us. Are we ready for question two? I am if you are. All right, let's bring it on. Uh, read Philippians 3, verse 13. Paul repeats that he has not become perfect. Does this mean that he has given up trying? What does it mean to forget what lies behind? What kind of things might lie behind Paul? See Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, and chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, for examples. All right, so Paul is really emphatic, repeating it just one verse later. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own this perfection. But one thing I do, and this is where he's going to say this, he doesn't just throw in the towel, but on his, in this earthly life, he's going to do one very important thing, forgetting what lies behead, uh, what, what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. And so if we're taking a look at the kinds of things that, that Paul is forgetting, the stuff that's in his past, you know, we have some pretty dark examples in, in Acts, where we have where we have Paul at this time known as Saul, Saul approving of Stephen's execution. Now, of course, there's a little bit of debate whether this is the same Saul or not, but it certainly seems mentioning him here, this man named Saul who's approving of Stephen's execution, and then who's and then we in the very next chapter we have Saul who becomes Paul, still breathing out murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord. Paul's a persecutor of the church before his conversion. And this is one of those things that he's going to leave behind and that he's going to be straining to forget. So and so this is one of the examples, one of the many things that Paul will recognize as his own failings in the past that he is trying to set behind him as he's moving forward in the faith. All right. Question three, you mentioned forgetting. Scripture speaks of a type of holy forgetting of sin. Read Isaiah 43, verse 25, and Jeremiah 31, verse 34, for examples. How do we make this divine forgetfulness of God our own? All right, so a lot of times we talk, God talks about how he remembers. You know, he remembers Israel when they're in bondage. He remembers his people when they're in exile, that Christ remembers and visits his people in the Song of Simeon. Here we have God forgetting. So he seems to have a very selective memory when it comes to specific things. And what are the things that, he, that God likes to forget? Well, in Isaiah 43, 25, he says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. 
So here we have God saying he's not going to remember our sins, that when he blots them out, they're gone. They're gone even from his own memory. So he's not going to be, you know, kind of keeping them in his back pocket so that, you know, when we slip up the next time, he says, hey, remember when I forgave you for that? What are you going to do for me now? That God doesn't ever really keep this secret ammunition that he's going to, you know, sniper fire at us when we're, we're least suspecting it that there's this divine forgetfulness. And he repeats it again in Jeremiah, the passage that's referred here, Jeremiah 31, 34. God's talking about this new covenant that's going to happen when he, when he comes to be with his people in a different way. And he says, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So we have this connection here with God's forgiveness and not remembering our sin, that when our sin is forgiven, it's out of God's mind. And this is a really kind of wonderful divine forgetfulness that God doesn't remember our sin. Now, we're actually really good at remembering our sin. <laughs> our consciences can be a little bit tender. And especially if we're thinking that, you know, our, our perfection lies in our own goodness or our own works. We're really good at saying, well, you know, I, I said I was going to stop doing that and then I kept on doing it, right? <laughs> or I did it again. And then, our, and then we remember all the other times that we've done this sin. Or if it's something that's so heavy on our conscience, even if it's a one-time sin that we committed, it's one of those things that really weighs on our conscience and we keep on going back to it. And so we have this, this unholy remembering of sins that God has said that he's forgotten. Of course, the devil also kind of prods our memory on that too, right? This is his, this is his number one job is to be the accuser. And so he'll remind you of, a, of all these things that you've done in the past and get you to try to get you to doubt God's forgiveness. But the way that we make it our own is this really wonderful tool that, we, uh, that God has given us, this gift in, the, in a confession and absolution. So for the, those sins that really do burden our consciences that we just can't seem to get out of our memory, then we go and we have, when we, we confess that sin and through the called and ordained servant that God has sent to take care of us, we have this divine forgetfulness that's shared with us so that God's memory becomes our own. And that specific sin that's been bugging us is forgiven. There's a, this makes me think of a, a modern hymn. The words are, what love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Ooh. That's a, a Keith and Kristen Getty. I was going to say. Of course. <laughs> of course. Called His mercy is more. But uh-huh. that first line, what love could remember no wrongs we have done. I, that, there's that divine forgetfulness. Yeah. 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 And I mean, Paul will talk about this when he's describing love itself, where he says love keeps no record of wrongs. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so this is God who is love will keep no record of our wrongs. All right, we'll pick up with question four in just a moment. We are searching scripture in the October issue of The Lutheran Witness with Pastor Tolig Oliphant of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. We'll continue the conversation in just a moment right here on The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's 
uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50 plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We are searching scripture in the October issue of The Lutheran Witness with Pastor Tony Oliphant of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. Pastor, are we ready for question four? We are. <laughs> All right. <laughs> question four. Read Philippians chapter four, verse 14. Paul is pressing on toward the goal. Picture a runner sprinting and leaning forward as he gets close to the finish line. Paul's readers in Philippi would have been familiar with such an image. With what prize would they be familiar? See 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 25. How does that image transfer to the prize mentioned here? See Revelation 2, verse 10. All right. So when I was in high school, I ran track and cross country. And one of the things they always taught us was on those races, when you get to the finish line, you lean forward, right? Just in case you're neck and neck with someone, you can, you can, you can take them by a nose. We have this image here where Paul's saying, I press on toward the goal that he, I mean, he's, remember Philippians, he writes while he's in prison, while he's under house arrest, right? And while he's imprisoned by the Roman Empire, he senses this goal line coming. He leaves it completely up to God's hand when he'll cross the goal. But here he, he's already leaning forward, right? He's already straining ahead. And so this is an image that the, the Philippians, being a Roman colony, would be very familiar with these, these sporting events. And so we have in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul's going to be using this imagery again in verses 24 through 25. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable. So they're, they're straining to see this crown, the crown of laurels that we might be familiar with. That's the, the victor's crown. And of course, this imagery is repeated in Revelation 2.10, where he promises to be faithful, where Christ speaks to his church, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So there's this, this crown that's the prize for crossing the finish line, for winning the race. And who is it that we're trying to beat? Well, we're outrunning our sinful nature, the fallen world, and the devil. And this victory is shared with us by Christ who overcame all these things already. Absolutely. All right, question five. Paul recognizes that this race, forgetting what is behind, straining and pressing on, is not always an easy concept. Read Philippians 3, verse 15. Who does he expect to understand and think this way? What does scripture mean when it refers to mature believers? See Hebrews 5 verses 12 through 14 and 1 Corinthians 3 verses 1 through 3. All right. So as we mentioned, that kind of divine forgetfulness and leaving behind our sins and moving forward in Christ's holiness is not always an easy concept. That we're really good at dredging all that stuff back up. And so Paul is going to be kind of saying that this is something that it, that it takes it takes experience, right? It takes practice that we learn these things by the Holy Spirit schooling us through the, our, the things that happen in our life. And Paul's going to say, let those who are mature think in such a way. 
There is this concept of spiritual maturity, and we see it in Romans 5, 12, where Paul says, for though by this time you ought to be teach, or not, well, maybe it is Paul who wrote Hebrews here, but the author of Hebrews writes, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. And so there is this this sense that we do have to keep on going back to uh, the fundamentals of the faith. Christ's forgiveness, what that means for us in our lives behind us, our lives ahead of us in the resurrection. And here again, Paul is talking about in, in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, the pastor cited here, Paul's talking about how they're not yet ready, um, that, that he, he couldn't address them as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, he calls them. Um, and so he doesn't want them to be caught up in jealousy and strife and these struggles between personalities but he wants them to behaving in a spiritual way, to be looking at Christ. Um, and so that's going to be this idea of spiritual maturity, always being able to draw from the foundations of what we've learned and learn to apply it in all the situations that come across, we come across in life. All right, question six. Mature believers will press on to discern good from evil, but will never assume that they have attained perfection. This shapes the way they behave toward other believers. See James chapter 5, verse 16, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, and 1 Corinthians 3, verses 18 through 21 for examples of this behavior. All right, so we have uh, these passages here where we're talking about, you know, the mature believer that they'll be able to apply law and gospel in all the situations where it's appropriate to apply law and gospel. And this means that it's also going to be that they're going to be applying it in their interactions with other people too. And in all of these passages, whether it's James 5 through 16, or whether it's 1 John 2, 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 21, we're going to have all of these passages that are talking about confessing our sins to one another, right? recognizing that the church is made up of sinners, which can be difficult, but it also is a, a comfort that that even the spiritually mature among us are still going to be recognized their shortcomings. And in fact, the spiritually mature are going to see them all the clearer because they're able to, to recognize even the subtleties of the law, the mirror that's going to be held up that reveals even those hidden flaws that we're sometimes really good at hiding from ourselves. And then also to see forgiveness just in this abundance for every single thing that's that's committed, that we commit, that's committed against us. And so the entire church is just going to be living and breathing the forgiveness of sins in the gospel. Yeah, that speaks to the importance of having relationships with people in the church and living to be, together as the body of Christ. Yes. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's not just purely a social club, but it's a club that's built on this uh, relationship of grace and forgiveness. Yep. All right. Question seven. Read Philippians 3 verse 16. Part of the spiritual maturity means holding on to what we have already been given. What is it that we have received and cling to? See also Second Timothy 1 verses 13 and 14 and Galatians 1 verses 8 and 9. All right, so we have uh, Paul speaking here, and he's saying, only let us hold true to what we have attained, to what has already been given, what's already been achieved in Christ, the, uh, the gospel that's already, that he's already been speaking to them. Um, so let us hold true to that. 
And this is something that even um, that that Paul's going to be saying, this is part of spiritual maturity, not being caught up in the latest trends that come along, not being blown about by every single wind of change and doctrine that shows up, but, you know, holding true to the foundation. This is what he's going to be encouraging the Galatians to do in Galatians 1, 8 through 9. As I've said before, if anybody is preaching a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. This is to the Galatians who have been a little wind blown in the uh, new doctrines that are showing up from the Judaizers in Galatia. But Paul even says this to Timothy, um, the, the stalwart, steadfast Timothy, who he trusted enough to leave, to leave him behind so that he could put the church in order. And uh, here he's going to tell him uh, to hold fast, um, to follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, to not only hold to the foundation, but keep to those same words, the words of the gospel, which ultimately are Christ's own words, and to hold to that pattern, not to think that we've grown beyond it, but to learn to apply it in these ever, ever better and more perfect ways. What We used a couple of phrases here that I, I would like to know a little bit more about what they mean. Uh, what you used hold fast and cling to. Mm. Yeah. What do those phrases mean that you can unpack them together or either one? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, I mean, we can talk about clinging to that we're, that we're holding on. There's this very physical sense of it, right? That you're, you're holding on tight to it as if it's what's going to save you. If you're, you know, on a ship that's, that's sunk, you're going to hold fast. You're going to cling to a life preserver or anything that's floating, right? Or also you're, you're not going to let anyone wrench it out of your hand, right? So, you know, you can, you can pry the gospel from my cold, dead hands, right? <laughs> and, and it won't matter because then I'll be resurrected anyway because that's what the gospel does. So, so yeah, so we, we, we have this idea that there's this, this very intense, just this is what your life depends on and you're not letting go no matter what. And so we can see that here. And yeah, we're talking about the, the, the kind of physicality of it too. This is one of the really great things about the gospel is it's not just this kind of intellectual idea, but it does you know, have this earthiness to it, this, this reality in our, our created world that our bodies also are affected by the gospel with the resurrection and that we receive the gospel in even physical ways too. So we actually get to hold Christ in our hands in the Lord's Supper, right? When we receive him in his body and his blood, that we can feel the gospel running off of our heads when we're baptized. So we can, we have these, these ways that we can really kind of just dig in and understand that there's this, this clinging nature of the gospel, that this is what my life depends on. And I'm holding on to it, body and soul. I hear the word cling. And for me, the image also includes that there's nothing in between mm. that there's yeah. like, there, the like when we're talking about like cling wrap for like yeah. food, not the cheap stuff that falls off, but the like good the good stuff, stuff that clings yeah. to it and this sticks to everything. There's nothing between that and the actual container of the food. Yeah. There's nothing between me and the gospel mm. that, that there's, they're cling. There's nothing, not even air between the two. Right. <laughs> right. That's what, that's what image I have when I hear the word cling. Yeah. All right. That's a good one. Asked, do you want to, do you want to, Hold fast, the same thing, or yeah, I would say I would say the same thing. That it's this, you know, not not letting up your grip on it, not getting distracted from it. Mm -hmm. Very good. All right, shall we sum up today's 
text and the searching scripture for today? Yeah, this is very much about the life of the Christian, the life of the believer in this world, where we're we're constantly going to be pulled between this tension of the fact that we're sinners and we do sin and that we're convicted of. And then also always bringing ourselves to the, the remembrance that those sins are forgiven and that God's not going to be, you know, keeping a secret file on us. Uh, that when he says that our sins are forgiven, they actually are forgiven. And that this is going to affect the way that we, that this is going to affect our relationship with God. It's also going to affect the way that we treat one another in the church as well. Searching the scripture in the October issue of The Lutheran Witness, Pastor Tony, Pastor Tony Oliphant, our guest from Redeemer Lutheran Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. Thanks so much, Pastor Oliphant, for joining us again this month. My pleasure as always. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support The Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.